open your Bible to Acts chapter 8. The last time that I was able to ask you to do that, I was uh, asking you to open to Acts chapter 4 way back in October. And so it's a privilege to be back with you where I belong and my people. And uh, today we're going to continue our study verse by verse through the book of Acts. You've heard from Pastor Micah, Pastor Tyler, Pastor Brent, whoever's up here in the pulpit. We're just going through the Bible and we're seeing what God has to say to us in his word. And uh, we've been studying about this viral movement in the first century that was the advancement of the gospel. Are you aware of the virus? You, you, you aware of the pandemic of the gospel? Yeah, it's like you infect somebody, you share that with somebody else, they go infect somebody else. It's a horrible analogy during these, this culture, but uh, that's what the book of Acts is all about. It's about a viral movement. And so we've been seeing the explosive growth of the church. We've seen these mass evangelism movements. Um, some of you are old enough to remember when Billy Graham would pack a stadium and, and uh, the buses would wait and the people would flood the aisles and people would give their hearts and lives to Christ. I got saved in a mass evangelism meeting like that. Anybody else? Anybody else getting saved in like one of those, you know, stadium events and things like that? That's kind of what we're seeing here in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches the gospel, 3,000 people respond in repentance and faith. In Acts chapter 4, the gospel is preached again, 5,000 men are saved and added to the church. We get to Acts chapter 6, and they just quit counting. They said just multitudes of people uh, were coming to Christ, and all that was great. It was all happening in a central location in Jerusalem. But then when you get to Acts chapter 7 and 8, guess what God does? God scatters his church. It's like a jelly donut that gets smashed and everything squirts out on the side. And so the gospel goes to outside of Jerusalem and we see the gospel continuing virally to move. But instead of seeing mass evangelism, now Luke is going to point us to some personal evangelism, not just one to many, but one to one. As a matter of fact, here's the big idea of the sermon today. Personal evangelism produces personal conversion through personal conversations. And so we're going to see a personal conversation between a guy named Philip and a guy who is unnamed here in Acts chapter 8. So let's get our eyes on a copy of God's Word, and let's begin reading in verse 26 as we meet a personal evangelist. Verse 26 says, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south. This will be a good time just to remind you that I didn't pick this passage of Scripture. Um, this was assigned to me, and so we're just going verse by verse through the passage of Scripture. So uh, the Scripture says that an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south. How many of you would be glad if an angel showed up and said the same thing to you? Um, and you're thinking, man, I'd like to go toward the south and things like that. So, so anyway, this is what the angel of the Lord says. And then he says, go toward the south to the road that goes down, to, down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. So in case you were thinking this is like a beautiful oasis type of place with palm trees and beaches, he is sending him to a hard place. He's sending them to a desert land. 
And he says in verse 27 that he rose and went. In obedience, exercising great faith, not knowing all the instructions, who was going to meet him there, why am I going? He just says he was told to go, and he rose and went. So who is this guy named Philip? Now, I had to learn something this week. I was assuming this Philip guy was one of the 12 disciples. Remember, Jesus had a disciple named Philip. That's not this guy. Um, This is Philip, one of the seven men that was chosen back in Acts chapter 6 as one of the early church deacons. We know that because all the way over in Acts 21, we read about Philip and it says this. It says that Luke, Luke entered into the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven and stayed with him. And so we know that Philip was a servant. That was one of these guys that that waited on tables and he served the church. This Philip served the elder Philip, the apostle Philip. We also know that he was a husband and a father. Again, in Acts 21, it says that he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. So Philip was a man living in a home with five women, four daughters who prophesied. How many of you believe he heard a sermon or two as a husband and a father uh, with, four, with all these women around him? I, I, as a father of three, I have heard a sermon or two. Uh, and, and Philip was doing a good job not only to evangelize people outside of his home, but he evangelized apparently the people in his home as well. His children were walking with God. They were in tune with God's spirit and they prophesied. So he was a servant. He was a husband and a father and He gets a title. He was an evangelist. So he must have had like a flaming blue neon coat, you know, and really slick hair. Is that what you think of when you think of an evangelist? That wasn't Philip at all. An evangelist is somebody who preached the good news wherever he went. And that was certainly true of Philip. Now, we're introduced to Philip. He, he, he had a thriving ministry. So again, he was in Jerusalem. God sent him 40 miles north to Samaria in Acts chapter 8. At the beginning of the chapter, we learn that he had a thriving ministry in Samaria. He preached the gospel. People were responding in in faith and repentance. He planted the church. The church was thriving and growing. He had the anointing of God's spirit. People were being healed. Demons were scattering and running. And the verse eight actually says, there was great joy in that city. But then an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go south. Do you think there was much joy in the city when the angel said that? That's what Philip was experiencing. He was having to leave people whom he loved. He was having to go to a different place and start all over again. And so, you know, this is a hypothetical situation. I'm sure nobody would ever experience this anything. But but Gospel City Church is not the first church to experience having to say goodbye to its founding pastor. As a matter of fact, this is the regular movement of the Spirit of God. God moves people around. Aren't you glad that God tells people to rise and go? All right, none of you are. All right, do you realize that Gospel City Church would not exist without the Spirit of God saying to men and women, rise and go? Do you understand that every one of your pastors ain't from around here, y'all? 
Do you know that? I remember 13 years ago, um, Andrew and I were thriving in ministry and life action ministries, traveling around. We had a, had a thriving ministry. We built a team. We'd recruited people to join our team. Uh, we were more financially secure than we'd ever been. We'd built a home over in Buchanan because that's where life action was. And the Spirit of God said, I want you to rise and go to Granger. There's 13 people there who have been praying for a pastor and they want to start a church. I'm like, that'll never work. That's, that's ridiculous. Why would I start over with 13 people? Like, what? And just like, it's interesting to argue with God a little bit, but eventually we felt the spirit of God's like rise and go. And so we rose and went. How's that working out? Um, and so we joined these 13 people. And you should be glad because you think about all the pastors and their wives on staff. Um, at one point, God said to Trent, I want you to rise and go from Oklahoma to Granger. And Andrea, I want you to rise and go from Alabama to Granger. And God said to Pastor Micah, I want you to rise and go from, from Pittsburgh. And I heard you know, that you know, Pastor Nathan heard from God and said, I want you to rise and go from California. And, and Pastor Wes and Pastor Tyler, I want you to rise and go from Texas. And, and Pastor Tyler Holder, I want you to rise and go from Virginia. And God sent all these people. Apparently, God told Brian Kelly to rise and go to Louisiana. <laughs> no, that was a fairy godmother, wasn't it? Okay, that's what I heard. It's like, and don't you even talk to me about Lincoln Riley. I'm not ready to have that conversation. Yet. All right, so you're like, What's he talking about? It's, it's a football thing. Anyway, we'll talk about that later. So anyway, God moves people around because he cares about these viral movements. God calls us to be personal evangelists. Some of you are saying, yeah, I would go do that too if an angel showed up. Yeah, God's not going to send you an angel probably. God's going to send you a pastor to tell you to open your Bible, to read this part about how God sent an angel to Philip to set the precedent for all of us to enter into personal conversations as personal evangelists so that we can believe God for personal conversion. Everybody here is an evangelist if you are a Christian. You are either an evangelist or you are the evangelized. You are either the one being sent, you are the one sending, or you are the one that God is sending to. But everybody here finds themselves in this story. Let's introduce you to a man with a personal hunger. Look here again in verse 27. Verse 27 says, he rose and went. And then there's this big gap in between the next word. And there was an Ethiopian. Now, when we hear the word Ethiopian, it's not talking about the geopolitical nation that we know of now as, as Ethiopia. He's talking about all of Africa, the whole continent of Africa, just south of Israel. Now the gospel is spreading to the south, and Philip is sent to this Ethiopian. And then notice, we know some things about this Ethiopian. He was a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all of her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. So what do we know about this eunuch? Well, we know that he was culturally different. He was a black African man who found himself in Jerusalem among very different people. He was a minority culture man in the midst of a majority culture world. Secondly, we know that he was politically powerful. It says he was the, 
the servant of the queen. He was the He was in charge of all of the treasure in Africa. He was the chief financial officer for the queen of Africa. He was rich, he was wealthy, he was influential, and he was powerful. We also know that he was intellectually elite. When Philip finds him, the Bible says, he was reading. You're like, well, what else would he be doing? Reading or watching Netflix? There's nothing else to do, right? Now listen, do you know how rare it was in this time frame to be able to read? Do you know how few things there actually were to read? This is before the printing press. This is before we were carrying around all the information in the world in our pockets on our phones. He was reading. He was an educated man. And not only that, he was sexually wounded. All right, let me just time, take a time out right now. Um, if you are in middle school, or if you have any residue in your head from middle school, I need you to raise the maturity level right now in your thinking, okay? Because we need to talk about some stuff that the Bible exposes us to, nothing shameful in the Bible, but we need to think about what it means to be a eunuch. Do you know what a eunuch is? A eunuch is a man who has been castrated. A eunuch is a man who has had part of his anatomy cut off. You say, why would anybody do such a thing? In the ancient world, understand this, the only men who were trusted to be around powerful women were men who were eunuchs. If you were a eunuch, you could pretty much guarantee this man was not going to rape, flirt, or date the women that he was around. And so he was considered safe. So how did you become a eunuch? Well, some men actually chose to be eunuchs. Some, of, some men castrated themselves because they wanted to climb the ladder of influence. They wanted to be around royalty. They wanted to, it was a career move for them. He, can you imagine sacrificing your marriage, and your posterity in order to prioritize your career. Who would do such a thing? Some people in this room have done the same thing, sacrificing what's most important for tangible things. Other eunuchs were made eunuchs at the hands of other people. Maybe even parents that wanted a better life for their children to advance politically or financially. But no matter how you became a eunuch, here's the reality. You were sexually wounded. Maybe through no fault of your own. Think about it. Never to become a parent, to be childless. For those of you that struggle with infertility, you need to get to know the eunuch. Never to be married. Some of you wonder, am I ever going to be married? You, get, you need to get to know the eunuch. And do you think that this guy might possibly have experienced a little gender confusion? Do you think maybe there were some gender identity issues with this guy? I mean, he's born biologically male, and apparently somebody's tried a first century gender reassignment surgery on this guy, 
and maybe he's wondering, who am I and what is my identity? Now, by the way, it is impossible to reassign gender. In order to do that, you would have to get into every cell of your body and take out a Y chromosome or insert a Y chromosome, and that's not possible. So uh, sexual amputation or addition doesn't reassign what God has assigned to us in our biology. Our theology trumps our biology, and this guy is about to have a collision with theology that's going to confront his sexuality and his biology. But we can, we can sympathize with this guy. He's been sexually abused. He's been sexually mutilated. Statistics tell us that one out of five men have experienced sexual trauma. One out of three women have experienced sexual trauma. This room is full of sexual brokenness and woundedness. And God introduces us to a man who is sexually wounded. And we're gonna find out what happened to this guy. Not only was he sexually wounded, he was spiritually hungry. Think about it. He had all the wealth, he had all of the influence, he had all of the security, but he's still searching for something. The Bible says he'd come to Jerusalem to worship. We don't know exactly what he thought he might find in Jerusalem, but apparently he heard rumors there's this God in Israel, he's got a big temple, and that's the only place on earth that you can meet with him. So what does he do? He packs up all of his stuff, chariots, entourage, and he is making a 1,000-mile journey, five months to get there, and he gets as close as he can, and he's religiously rejected. You know why? He's a Gentile. You couldn't even get into the inner courts. There was a Gentile courts that was a lesser court, down 14 steps in another place, and that's as close as he could get. Not only that, but he found out that when he got there, that buried in the Old Testament law there was this verse, Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 1, which says, no one whose male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. He's sexually wounded, he's spiritually hungry, and he's religiously rejected. He got as close as he could, and somebody said, People like you don't belong here. You're not good enough. And so he begins to make a journey home, dissatisfied, possibly confused, possibly sad, possibly angry. He'd come to worship, he'd gotten as close as he could, but he's still dissatisfied. So, he began to return, but he didn't return empty-handed. Somewhere along the way, he acquired a scroll of Isaiah. Somebody put a Bible in his hand. We don't know if he stopped at the temple bookstore or downloaded it on his phone, but somehow he gets a copy of the Bible. And on his way home, he is reading it. He is passionately pursued by God. Look at verse 29. And the Spirit said to Philip, go over and join 
this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? That's the greatest question in the world. Somebody's read the Bible and then God not only gives him a Bible, he gives him a friend and comes alongside like, you understand that? You know, that's my greatest hope after every sermon I preach that you'd go and get around the lunch table and the family conversation would start with, did you understand anything Trent said this morning? Do you understand what you read? Tell me what you understood. Tell me how God spoke to you. Tell me what God's doing in your life. And let me help you unpack that because we can understand the Bible better in community rather than we can in reading it in isolation. God brings Philip to him to answer his unanswered questions and to satisfy his spiritual hunger. So he's reading Isaiah, a book that was written 700 years before this whole episode took place. It's written in another language. It was originally written in Hebrew. This eunuch is likely reading a Greek translation called the Septuagint. Thank God for translation so that you don't have to learn Greek and Hebrew. They translate it into our language. He could read it. Philip could understand that. They could have a conversation because there was a common language. So he's reading this. And let me show you what he's reading. Remember, he's got the whole book, the whole scroll of Isaiah. Remember, there's no chapter in verse divisions at this time, so he's just reading. Let me show you some of the things that he must have found in Isaiah. This is Isaiah 56. Let not the eunuch say, Behold, I'm a dry tree. So he's reading this ancient Hebrew manuscript, and he finds something that is in there specifically about him. And God says, behold. God God says, don't say, let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. A dry tree, what is that? That's an infertile tree. It's a tree that won't produce. So somehow God is saying, he's gonna change the identity of even sexually broken eunuchs. It goes on to say, For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant. There's hope for eunuchs. Here's a guy that's got a spiritual hunger. He went all the way to Jerusalem. He's rejected. He's turned away. But he finds in this book that God has a heart for eunuchs who choose the things that please God. Next verse says this. God promises, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name that is better than sons and daughters, and I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. How do you think those words land on a eunuch? God's promising hope and healing. And God's promising, you can come into my presence. I know you were just turned away at my temple, but those guys didn't know what I'm about to do. I'm about to allow people like you inside the walls, into the inner presence, to draw near to the heart of God. He keeps reading and he finds this. These eunuchs, I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer 
Does that sound familiar? Jesus quoted that verse, didn't he? But we usually stop there. The verse actually finishes this way. For all people. For all Gentile people. For all African people. For all rich, powerful, influential, sexually broken, religiously rejected people. People like you can come and God will make them joyful. And so he's reading this and he's like, what does this mean? How does this apply? Is God going to do something to change my status so that I can actually get close to God? And so God gives him Philip as a friend to help him figure this out. The eunuch invites him to come a little closer. Notice here in, um, in verse 32. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep that was led to the slaughter and like a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Verse 33. In his humiliation... Justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. There's somebody here whose life has been taken away that somehow is going to change the identity and the status of these sexually broken eunuchs. He's wondering, who could this be? Verse 34, the eunuch said to Philip, about whom I ask you, does the prophet say this? Is he talking about himself or is he talking about somebody else? That's the greatest question to ask. Who is this about? Who is the Bible written about? Answer? Jesus. It's a Sunday school answer, right? But you know, so often we read the Bible as if it was written about us. We come to the Bible looking for some advice or some encouragement or some inspiration, looking to find a devotional thought, you know, to get us through the next week. Nothing wrong with that essentially, but unless you find Jesus on every page, you have not properly interpreted the Bible. So we ask the question that we all should ask, who is the Bible about? And Philip answers him. Philip tells him who it's about. It's about Jesus. And the passage that he's reading that we now know is Isaiah chapter 53. And it's all about a personal substitute. Let me show you more of what he's reading in Isaiah 53. He, whoever this guy is, whoever this is about, he was despised and rejected by men. And the eunuch must have thought, I know what that's like. I can identify with this. Whoever this is, I would like to know him. He's been despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He's like, I could, man, I, that's me. And as one from whom men hid their faces and was despised and we esteemed him not, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. So whatever is happening in this passage, it connects to my grief and my sorrow he goes on, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. It continues and says this, but he was pierced for our transgression. Somebody's taking a sharp object and mutilating this man's body. Eunuch could relate to that. It goes on, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. 
and with his wounds, we are healed. Woundedness? Sexual woundedness? Bodily woundedness? Spiritual woundedness? Emotional woundedness? This unit could identify with everything that's being written here, and he wants to know who this is. It continues, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now he's talking about our sin. Like dumb sheep, we stray away from the shepherd. We think we know better. And the scripture says that every one of us has done this. And so now it's not just about the eunuch, it's about understanding that I've got to come to God as one who is wounded, not one who is wealthy and powerful and influential and secure, but one who is broken and despised. And it continues, this eunuch read, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off. Sound familiar? He was treated as if he was a eunuch. Eunuchs aren't allowed in the presence of God. And because he, whoever this is in Isaiah 53, because he was cut off out of the land of the living and stricken for the transgression of my people, this eunuch could be treated as if he was healed. And he wants to know who this is. And so look at verse 35. It says, then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with, his, with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. The passage is all about Jesus. And Philip went on to explain what theologians call the penal substitutionary atonement of Christ. He told him the good news that Jesus had died on a cross in his place as a substitute for his sin. This passage was written about Jesus so that this eunuch could receive the gift of eternal life and be treated not as if he was a eunuch cut off, but as if he was brought in, grafted in. Do you understand? We're all cut off. In order to be converted to Christ, we have to believe that God is so holy we can't get into his presence. People like you and me don't belong near the holiness of God. We are all cut off from his righteousness and his holiness. And people like you and me, we've all gone astray. We have all been mutilated by sin. We've all been broken and wounded. And yet God has loved us so much, he has sent evangelist to come and preach to us the good news that was prophesied 700 years before this time that Jesus was going to experience what a eunuch experienced so that we could experience the grace and the peace and the presence of God. That's the gospel. In this passage, it says that God laid upon him the iniquity of us all. What does that mean? It's my Bible. 
let's pretend it's not a Bible. Let's pretend it's a journal. Let's pretend it was a record book of every sin that you've ever committed, okay? Now, if it was my book, it'd have to be a lot bigger than this one. But let's say that every time you sin, somebody journaled that. Like, yeah, I saw that attitude. Yeah, I saw that lustful thought. Yeah, I saw that, you know, dishonesty. I saw that dishonor. Uh, Even deeper than that, I saw that idolatry. I saw that time you've, you know, forgot to thank God for all the goodness and you've complained and and you've actually tried to play God and you've tried to get people to worship you and all, all all of those deep spiritual things. What if they were all written in this book? And let this hand represent God, and let this hand represent me. So here's me. There's my record book of sin. Notice, there's a barrier between me and God. What is it? The barrier is my sin. And Isaiah 53 says that God sent Jesus to become a man like me, and while Jesus was hanging on the cross, God laid upon him the iniquity of of all who would repent and believe. And Jesus took it and did away with it. And now God and I can come into personal relationship with one another because God doesn't have a barrier between me and my sin. And so this is the good news of the gospel. And in order to be converted to Christ, we've got to come as a broken person. Here's the last thing, a personal conversion. Notice, notice verse 37, actually verse 36. It says, and as they were going along the road, they came to some water. That's interesting because I thought they were in a desert. They are in a desert. But God sovereignly orchestrated an event where, hey, they came right to a spot where there's enough water to do what? Baptism would be a good option. Notice what it says. And the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? So, like, where did he get the idea of baptism? Well, Philip must have told him. Like, hey, this Jesus, this good news about Jesus, we were just with him. And uh, the last thing he said before he ascended back to the Father is said that we were to go and make disciples of all nations. What nation are you from? Yeah, Ethiopia. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So he heard about baptism and he must have said, hey, why can't I be baptized? Any nation, anybody like me, I can be baptized? Yeah, so why can't I be baptized? Let's look at the answer in verse 37. Anybody having trouble finding verse 37 in your Bible? Did somebody steal verse 37? How many of you, somebody stole verse 37 in your Bible? Yeah. So what's the deal? Why isn't, do you see there's like, it goes from 36 to 38, right? Now, if you look down in your footnote, you'll find verse 37 probably. Here's the deal. Verse 37 was not a part of the original manuscripts. Um, A commentator must have scribbled it in there because it looked like there was a gap, and it's like, the answer surely would have been what verse 37 says in some of the translation. It says, and Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may be baptized. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So 
those were the words of men that somebody inserted there to make it, it's kind of like your study Bible. You got to make sure the words of God and the words of men don't, you know, mix up a little bit. And somehow in one of the manuscripts that got inserted in there. So it's not in our modern translations because it wasn't in the earliest manuscripts there. But it's consistent with everything that we know about conversion. He's believing in Jesus as the Son of God. He's confessing Jesus with his heart. He's believing. And so Philip explains this to him. Then verse 38 says, and he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water and Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. In order to receive Christ, in order to be converted, in order to be baptized, He had to stop where he was going. He had to get down out of his chariot. He had to lower himself. He had to get down off his high horse. He had to humble himself. He had to go down into muddy water. This guy had probably never been in muddy water. I'm sure the water that he bathed in was quite clean. So he had to humble himself in order to be baptized. Then verse 39 says, and when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away and the eunuch saw him no more. Wait a minute, what about discipleship? I thought we were gonna be buddies. I thought we were like gonna like start a church and it's gonna grow and nope, God had another assignment for him. But the eunuch went on his way rejoicing. And he didn't just return to Africa alone. He was carrying a Bible. And this eunuch became the first convert and the first evangelist to take the gospel to Africa, where it thrived. Think about how his conversion changed his whole identity. Think about what happened in baptism. That's what baptism does. It's a picture of our identity with Christ. Christ lived, died, was buried, and raised again. That's the picture of what happens in baptism. And so this guy's whole identity had shifted. God no longer thinks of him as a sexually broken eunuch. He thinks of him as one of his children. And when he got baptized, he went down into the water, rejected, but he came up out of the water rejoicing. Amen? He went down into the water, wounded and cut off. He came up out of the water, healed and drawn close. All right, I know this is a predominantly white church, but um, I'm doing the best I can up here to preach like Stephen Love, and I need you to participate, okay? All right, I see KJ over there. KJ, can you help him out? All right, you lead that section over there, all right? Because I can go all day. I got a list here. Are you ready? He went down into the water physically clean, but spiritually dirty. He came up out of the water physically dirty, but spiritually washed clean. There you go. He went down into the water, a servant of the queen. He came up out of the water, a servant of the king. He went down into the water, identifying as a eunuch. He came up out of the water, identifying with Christ. He went down into the water on his way home to Ethiopia. He came up out of the water on his way home to heaven. He went down into the water, the evangelized. He came up out of the water, the evangelist. He went down into the water as one sent to. He came up out of the water as the one being sent. Personal conversion 
changes your whole identity. I got a question for you. Have you been converted? Or have you just been evangelized? Have you been baptized? What's preventing you from being baptized? Silence. Yeah, see, it's not this metamorphosis that takes place just kind of, I've just kind of always been a Christian. I'm just kind of thinks, I hope I, no. There's a moment when God sends the gospel to you. And at that moment, you must make a personal choice to believe and to repent of sin. And at that moment, you are changed from a wounded, broken sinner to a washed, clean sinner who has a home in heaven. Have you responded in faith? Secondly, are you a personal evangelist? If you are a Christian, you are an evangelist. And you don't need to wait for an angel to say, rise and go south. And you don't just need to think, yeah, south to like Florida. How about south to your neighbor? Do you know your neighbor who lives to the south of your house? That'd be a good spot to start. Do you know the person that works next to you south in the cubicle that you're in? Personal evangelists produce personal conversions through personal conversations. I want you to stand with me. Bow your heads, close your eyes. Do you need to be converted to Christ? Maybe you thought, man, there's no healing for the woundedness that I've received. I've made some horrible choices sexually or maybe some horrible things have been done to you. Jesus stands with open arms. He says, by my stripes, you can be healed if you'll receive the free gift of eternal life through faith and repentance. Maybe you've been rejected by religious people. Maybe you've thought you're not good enough. People like you don't belong here. God loves you so much that he brought you here today to hear somebody preach good news. Will you respond in faith and repentance to Jesus? Maybe just right now, open your heart up to him and say, Lord, I've never understood that you could love somebody like me. I never understood that there's healing for the woundedness that I've experienced. Thank you for dying on that cross, being treated like me, for being wounded so that I could be healed. I choose to come down off my high horse offer my life to you. I receive you as Lord. If you've done that today, I want to encourage you to take the next step. Come to a pastor here today. You'll find them here at the front of the auditorium. Find them out in the lobby. Some of you have done that. And the next step for you is to be baptized. You've put it off. You've justified it because... Maybe your parents loved you enough to take you as a baby to the church and sprinkle some water on you. Hey, is your baptism on the right side of your salvation? It needs to be. You come to a pastor. We'll have a conversation about that. Father, thank you 
for the evangelists that you've brought to us, who brought us the good news, who left wherever they were to come to wherever we were and to show us Jesus in the scripture. I pray that that would always be the testimony of our church. Pray that you'd raise up hundreds of evangelists that would just simply go across the street or to go to their neighbor, go to their fellow student, and ask them, have you ever understood what the Bible is trying to say? Do you know who the Bible's about? God, give us faith to conquer our fear in having that conversation. Continue to spread the gospel virally through these people. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.